I've seen the the content creators on YouTube for very weird niches like uh, resellers, for example. There are people who resell products by buying them from uh, thrift stores in the US, Goodwill, for example. And then they essentially resell those products uh, on eBay. And yeah, the income is, is very bad at the start, right? But uh, these channels are... They went from like 1,000 people watching to like 100,000 people watching now. And then their income shifted from, you know, uh, as a reseller, maybe 80%, 20% content creation to now 40% content creation or even 60% content creation and the remaining 40% for reselling. So it's a very interesting equation that's happening where it's kind of like uh, people figuring out that route and tech platforms uh, further amplifying or making it easier for you to shift. Welcome to the MHV Podcast. We speak with leading founders, VCs, and operators on their journey in Southeast Asia. Learn more at www.monkshill.com. Hi, Ziyang. Really excited to have you on the show. Uh, really excited to have you because you're doing something really amazing with commerce and creators. And I would love for you to introduce yourself. Hi, hi, hi. Nice to meet you, uh, Jeremy. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to come on this podcast. Right. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of UpMesh. Uh, I'm mainly in charge of product here. And uh, we're a startup helping people to become great life sellers in Southeast Asia. Amazing. And what's interesting is that, you know, just to start off, you studied, you know, high school, junior college in Singapore. And one of the things that we noticed about you was that um, you chose not to go to university. Could you share a little bit more about that? Ah, uh, yes. So I think uh, as part of this journey, uh, what I realized very early on during my JC days was that I didn't really have a idea of, well, I knew what I wanted to do from the beginning, right? So I wanted to go into business. I was a kind of problem solver type of guy. I felt that, you know, studies are more uh, generic in nature and going to university without that direction set forth for me would have been a, a big no-go, right? Because I see myself as the type who will come back to university maybe of, you know, 30, 40 to double my learning, but not before I actually saw what happened out there, you know, in the wild. And I did a lot of uh, small ventures to really kickstart that journey, right? So while everyone else was at university, you know, trying to figure out uh, what kind of things they wanted to go into, like, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer. Uh, I was very certain that I was going to go into business at some point. And I kickstarted my journey by doing, uh, you know, smaller ventures that didn't really require much capital. Uh, in a way, almost everything I did at that time was bootstrap. So I've done everything from even doing, I think the funniest one would be painting services. So I started a website that essentially offered uh, home painting services for people. And uh, you know, I got together a team. Uh, I worked together with the more traditional industries in painting to get uh, people to hit down and paint houses. So I learned about digital marketing, managing resources in the process. And then from there, you know, every venture was different. So I had one with, uh, I did box shop selling. So uh, if you are, uh, if you're in Singapore, there's actually a concept where an entrepreneur can rent boxes from certain shops inside shopping malls, and you can kind of put your own retail items in there for the shops to help you sell. So it's kind of like a consignment basis approach. And through that, I learned about, you know, drop shipping, good sourcing from China, logistics and everything in between. And then finally, the journey kind of brought me to uh, in 
tech consulting. So I did a, a lot of advisory for blockchain companies back then. I did a lot of marketing work for them as well, uh, community management, essentially helping them to navigate the environment around uh, how the blockchain industry is raising funds. And while I'm not proud of it today, because you know, you know crypto is kind of like a bubble that kind of goes up, goes down, and people you know lose their savings and everything. I'm not proud of the fact that the crypto industry is sometimes seen as a bit of a scam. But I did learn a lot from you know how to essentially get communities up and running, and all of it really ties back to the problem solving mentality that I have. Right. So yeah, I think that uh, really brings me to the journey I am on right now. So it went from all the way from all these retail, you know, online services, platforms, tech consulting, and then all the way into live streaming. This is where uh, I realized that I had the biggest problem I had to solve, right? So uh, there were a lot of people out there who were making a living with live selling, and there's an opportunity to really open this space up to get both more buyers as well as sellers into this. Yeah, amazing. And it's such a contrarian move to not go to university, especially for a lot of folks in Southeast Asia, you know, going to university is a very big milestone and thing to do. Um, when you were doing it, did you have any regrets? Were there any moments where you were like, oh, I wish I'd gone to university? Or were there moments like, oh, this is the best thing I ever did? How did that mix play out? I think for a lot of people, the university experience is, is a must-have, right? You, you make a lot of your late uh, life friends along that period and that scratch of your life that's where you know it's a make or break right but that's also where i differ in a sense that i don't want university and a piece of paper to be my make or break right i want it to be the the process or the journey and uh for the younger generation what i'm observing today you know between millennials and gen generation z is that increasing amount of people are struggling to find jobs not because there are no jobs available to them but they're not really taught how to job hunt they are not really being taught where the opportunities of the 2020s lie. So that's something that has been uh, a big thorn for me. So uh, having not gone to university and still managed to make a living, I actually see a lot of the opportunities out there today which people are not capitalizing on. And the school doesn't will never teach you the realities of the job market. They are honestly not updated on it. They can't tell you, you know, how do you get salary increments, for example, or how do you find a job that's uh, fulfilling for you? They leave it all up to you to experiment. But when you're thrown into the, the job market straight away, even after getting a degree, you realize that that degree actually only matters to pass the initial bar. I've spoken to both employers and employees in this process, and it's hilarious because the employers are saying, there's no one taking out my job ads. But the employees are saying that they can't find a job. So there must be some kind of disconnect going on. And, you know, it's a problem that goes and starts from the fact that uh, school and university doesn't solve that problem, that part of the equation. It also doesn't imbue you with the kind of hard skills that you'll realize you'll need in a working environment. So uh, it's not just about regurgitating what you learn in school. It's about thinking through things logically, understanding how to value yourself, how to contribute to the company as a whole. Right. So. Of course, there's also the other aspect where uh, that one I talk about alternative opportunities, right? We're talking about, like, for example, you know, uh, doing things like live streaming on Twitch or YouTube or, you know, making video content, uh, going on the gig economy, working on Fiverr. These are opportunities that I've seen many people succeed at and they've built up not only significant income sources from these, they've built up the skills that they need to basically become valuable to the economy. So that's a lot of what school doesn't do for you. And uh, what I feel you know, younger people should be looking at. So if someone is a student and they have an idea of something they want to build, 
and they're like a year to a year three student and they ask you, should I drop out or not? How would you advise them to think through the process? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question because one of the things that uh, I always wanted to talk about was risk management, right? But not from the perspective of finances, more of risk management around learning, around uh, whether you can afford to take that dive. Uh, at the end of the day, each person's circumstance affects whether they should become an entrepreneur. So um, if you have a family that you know that relies on you, if your family were not in a condition to allow you to go and uh, in Chinese, quite swung. The idea here is that you need to evaluate your own life circumstances and really take risk management to a new level. If you need the income, you maybe you have a girlfriend, you're going to get engaged soon. Then it's all about trying to figure out what's most stable. And in that case, you can only take on ventures or ideas that either you can get funding for, or if you're confident to bootstrap it while holding a job. Right. So it's all about risk management and risk management, there's high risk and low risk. Right. So someone who has an app who believes that, you know, uh, for one of a better word, if they cannot cope with the stresses of having no income or eating less or, you know, sacrifices in your daily lives, then they shouldn't take on that much risk. They shouldn't go full on into, you know, two, three years of having no income. Right. Whereas if you're somebody who believes that, okay, I can eat less, you know, I can, uh, you know, take the MRT every day, take the bus every day and still manage to get away with my job or do two jobs at the same time even, then that's something that you can explore early on. So with all of that, you've obviously gone on to work in a bunch of jobs, kind of like profile that risk, right? You know, some of them are riskier, some of them less risky. Um, how should someone think about it mm. uh, from small business to uh, all the way to blockchain? So how did you learn how to improve your perception of risk? Because I remember when I was a student, I was not very good at perceiving risk. And so I remember all the people who were older than me would be like, oh, Jeremy's very risky, he's very risky. And I'd be like, oh, it's not risky. I totally know how to do it. And now I'm older, I'm like, okay, now I'm like, uh, risky that I thought. And then also there's a lot of university students that ask me the same question. So I'm just kind of curious, how did your evolution of understanding of risk change over time? Okay, this is a very interesting topic for me. Let's look at risk from uh, some personal decisions I made in my life. So when I was in NS, I took on the risk in a sense, but I decided that I was going to spend my off time at night, uh, essentially working on a website that I built. I couldn't monetize it, of course. Ultimately, what I learned from it and what I did was that I, I gave up or sacrificed the, the time I had in my free time to set up something that allowed me to learn about online marketing, about websites, about how to really run an online business. And that directly leads into what happened after NS, right? So I was able to kickstart that home painting service website. It was directly as a result of essentially spending that time and effort or rather than capital to go into something. So I didn't lose anything in the process. The risk here was minimal. That's a low risk activity. And then uh, let's look at something more high risk. So a lot of people will say crypto investing is high risk, right? So that's something that, you know, uh, in order for you to understand how the crypto markets work at all, or even understand the basics of Bitcoin, you kind of need to know about the industry, about the tech. You can't just look at the lines and the charts and say, oh, I'm going to buy Bitcoin because everyone says to buy it. The risk there is that most people don't realize you actually need to be full time into crypto in order to even start crypto investing. And that's high risk because you need to spend a lot of your time and effort for something that may even lose your money. Right. So when you make decisions uh, as a result of the uh, 
kind of circumstances you're in as well as what kind of things you can afford to do uh, you'll find that your life goes a lot better in general and that risk extends beyond just finances it's always about you know what kind if you take on a job for example and that job pays well but it doesn't give you a lot of learning it doesn't give you a lot of growth opportunities for your next job that's also a risk because you may be stuck in that role for a while and you can't switch jobs easily because your new employer is going to look at it and like wait you were washing dishes for you know six thousand dollars like what does that mean when you join my tech company for example right it's a dead end in that sense so you need to look at not just the finances and numbers um you know during the school period i would say even more important to be choosing how you want to invest your time because you have to juggle studies with you know extracurricular activities with uh you know your commitments in real life you know and on top of that if you're going to start a business let's say a lot of people will say that their dropshipping successes start from uni uh i would say that uh you're sacrificing something in the process it's just how much of that to you is acceptable and what's interesting is that there's not only just risks that you're managing and i think what i like about what you're saying is that you basically learn how to manage risk by taking on risk over time. Right. There's also a reward dynamic as well, right? Because some jobs pay more, some pay less, some like crypto, you need to have some capital to even begin investing. Otherwise, you know, why are you learning or why are you uh, growing? How do you think about that aspect about the reward part of the dimension? I think people need to clearly define their objective for doing something. So, if you are able to see, uh, you know, let's say you're looking for a job, right? If you're able to see how you're going to grow and contribute in that role before you've even applied for the job, that actually gives insight to not just yourself. It also tells the employer what's your journey, right? Uh, when I hire people right now for my startup, the questions that I ask may not necessarily have a correct answer. It's not really to evaluate your your skills anymore because uh, part of the job hunting process is about where are you going to be in three to five years time? Right. And having visuals of insights into that actually helps you to plan ahead for the rewards you're going to get. If you know that, um, you know, you want to elevate yourself to a certain role within three to five years, maybe your stint at that company are going to be at might be shorter than, you know, uh, staying long term because maybe that company just doesn't scale uh, in the way you wanted it to. So, for example, a big company may not do as many promotions. If you had to, if you had a working for a company like, like 50,000 employees, they're not going to have that many C-level people or like, many executives, right? They're going to have a lot of uh, like senior, junior people who are sitting there and that's the end part of the cycle. You would plan ahead in such a way where you gain the experience and learnings at these companies, that's your reward. But when you switch your job, that's when you can upsell yourself using these skills and tell people how you contributed and how that contribution is actually magnified then by joining, let's say, a smaller company or a startup. And your pay doesn't necessarily drop because at the end of the day, the job market is, you know, certain roles are certain price, right? It's just a matter of whether you can contribute enough to justify that company paying you a certain amount. Right? So being able to chart that route ahead of you helps with that reward cycle, right? And what's interesting is that it seems like over time, you've taken on opportunities that are more risk in some ways while they're risking it, you know? So how do you think that you learned how to do it? Yeah. I think that evolves from uh, really going through it. So uh, let's use uh, public speaking as an example. Right? And being on this podcast is a very good example. Right? When I was a kid, I wouldn't say that I'm the type of guy who goes out and you know confidently says things out loud. You go up to a mic, you know, you're nervous. That's normal, right? But as you experience something, the confidence level goes up. And with confidence, surprisingly, comes a level of 
success or aptness, right? You are able to actually uh, believe in what you do because you're confident. Um, you know, when I'm running a startup, I'm in a product role right now, but I understand why marketing fits into product and how it feeds the business cycle. And that's something that uh, as an insight helps me to run my company better. And it allows me to take on bigger risk in what I do because I no longer just have to worry about, okay, do I actually know what I'm doing? You have a bigger understanding of the world at hand. So, you know, from an experience perspective, when you can you can go into new ventures when you have insights into how it works. I can give a great example, and you mentioned, uh, you know, so for fundraising, right? That's something that no one knows how to do. Frankly speaking, if you ask any founder, they give you an equation. It really doesn't work because it's their personal journey of fundraising. But what I realized was that actually it's more logical than it sounds because I saw two different fundraising cycles. I was in the blockchain industry where companies were using tools like ICOs to raise money. I was also, I've also gone through my own personal journey as a founder, raising money through uh, for, my, for Amesh through typical VCs, right? They both work actually in the exact same way, right? Even though they're two very, very separate uh, industries in a sense. So you only get that kind of insight from something you've done in the past. Right? You can't get that kind of insight by pretending you know about it. You actually have to go through more things in order to take on more risk. And what's interesting is that you know, your understanding about risk, reward on a personal level is also a big part about why you've built up Mesh as well, because you're letting people be able to transform what they're being passionate as a creator and helping them monetize and make a living. Could you share more about how that came about? Yeah. So... A lot of people would, you know, categorize Upmesh as like, oh, we are a B2B, uh, you know, seller enhancement to, you know, they're like Shopify, but for live sellers, for example. But the way I see it is that uh, we're building out a set of tools and an ecosystem of buyers and sellers that effectively allows anyone to become a live seller. So I'm removing the risk for you, right? If you want to sell products live on screen today, the first thing you need to do is to get capital. You need to buy inventory. You need to figure out your administrative processes. You need to know logistics, for example, right? Knowing logistics is something that I can't, even till today, I can't imagine people can figure out just by you know, sitting in a basement planning out stuff. It's actually quite hands-on. So these are things which, as you look at the live streaming industry as a whole right now, the a lot of people can actually enter if the only skill set required was just to learn how to live stream or show up on camera. That's very accessible but all of these other business part of the equation you know uh, figuring out how to do fulfillment of goods you know sending out goods on time uh, collecting orders these are things that you can't actually uh, immediately start on you need to go through failures right we effectively remove the need for these failures as a platform so we're enabling new content creators to rise up you're en enabling an industry of uh, you know people who create content in this case they're selling products on live screen Right. Uh, and that's really how I see Amesh's role. I need to emphasize again that live selling has made many people uh, rich in a sense, right? It's actually a very easy way to earn money. It's much more lucrative uh, than, you know, most things you can do at the age of 20 to, 20 to 30. In fact, I'm seeing numbers that <laughs> most people would balk at. <laughs> and what's interesting is that you know, creators and, you know, social selling and live streaming, these are all tools. Um, and they used to be considered hobbies, right? It is. It is still a, 
a hobby today. In fact, uh, most of the sellers that uh, we're talking to don't see themselves as only business people, right? So uh, they have to juggle with, uh, you know, where to draw the line between one of my buyers being a friend and it being a commercial transaction sometimes because of the, the closeness of the relationship. It's in fact an engagement. So when they first started out doing this, it was really because, you know, um, I, I, they want to have some influence in a sense, right? Uh, they want to go out and show people that, oh, this is a hobby of mine. I'm selling some of my clothes. Or, you know, these are clothes that I personally like. So I think that you guys should wear it too. And then it so happens that, you know, in the process of holding this hobby, it, it became an entire micro community of its own. Uh, today, most live selling in Southeast Asia is at the very early stages where it's just small communities doing uh, things privately. They don't, it's not in the mainstream yet, even though it shows up on the news quite often because, uh, the essentially it's hobby is doing something right uh, but there's again that opportunity to bring it into the mainstream it's interesting because there's a kind of a creator pyramid right so at the bottom there's a b- bunch of folks who are learning to get in very small counts so it's either hobby by experimentation and then in the middle of the pyramid are people who you know it's not a full-time thing or it is full-time but it's not necessarily you know a large quantum but obviously more than whatever they were planning um, so they're semi-professionals, <laughs> you know, prosumer. And then at the mm. top, you have people who are kind of like the stars who are making a lot of bank, you know, big names and so, so forth. So when you think about that pyramid, what do you think are the challenges associated with each level from your perspective? Mm. So I think you address this from a, a business perspective first, or rather as the perspective of the platform. So if you're a TikTok or your YouTube, that pyramid exists as well. Right. So the content creators at the top, they're getting a lot of money. They're being paid well. They get all the influence. They're essentially the, the major people on your platform moving most of that volume, so to speak. And then at the bottom, you have, uh, you know, smaller communities or smaller groups and people and influencers who essentially you, you may not realize it, but small numbers doesn't mean that you don't earn much. That's the first uh, discrepancy I think that people have. So I won't say it which channel is it but i used to have a youtube channel it's a of course it's anonymous in that sense that you wouldn't know about me from it but you know from a subscriber count of three thousand, you can actually get roughly 800 usd in ad revenue on youtube which is that three thousand is not a lot and then for my live sellers right now a follower count of about thirty thousand is actually a ton of money so it's not about strictly about like absolute numbers in the pyramid it's about the viability and the access and the ease of getting into it that's the problem right now so you know the the gig economy is a a bit strange in that it's very opaque in how much you can earn from it Uh, of course companies are not going to publish the numbers because that kind of sets the 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 cap on it even if it's good right so as a influencer as a content creator the only way for you to figure out uh how uh, good it is is to get into it and that's the part where people need to first try it right you know even if you're going live on facebook for about five hours a week that kind of builds up over time it may seem like oh uh, five hours and there's only like five people watching my show at most i'm taking in like 10 orders a week but it builds up that's the whole point of the content creating economy so you know the same goes for tiktok right you start out as maybe a nobody you have like uh, you create enough videos that one of your videos goes viral and then suddenly you're a minor content creator and then so on and so forth so these are pyramids that uh you know just because you're at the bottom doesn't mean that it's not sustainable uh, and there is a, a formula of sorts to climb that pyramid 
And then to some extent, it becomes, okay, there's that middle awkward stage where you're starting to monetize a little bit, uh, but it's not really enough for you to go full-time or part-time. And so these monetization tools is a big aspect that I think the whole world is trying to build out now. Could you share more about what's going on here in terms of trends? Mm. So there's actually an interesting uh, equation happening. Uh, you're right. It's, there's kind of that bit of a transition phase, a boundary where you're not sure whether it's worth it to go full time into content creation. And that part is actually the tech platforms problem. So depending on the platform you're in, it's their algorithms and their services that uh, allow you to monetize. So from a mesh perspective, for example, uh, we try to, to optimize for a few metrics, right? Uh, how can you earn more money while spending less time? Uh, live streaming how do you increase the amount of live streaming time you have uh, at, at your choice right how do we reduce the number of barriers to entry so that you can spend very little amount of work to get a large amount of output be it in terms of uh, content created or in terms of the number of products you can go through during a live selling session so these are things which the tech platform is in charge of and uh, depending on the industry you're in, there may not be someone servicing that particular hobby or particular community. And that's where platforms like us or, or startups like us can come into the picture. Uh, I think that transition boundary is better expressed by uh, essentially calculating how much you lose and how much you're growing it. Uh, that's something that people need time to learn. So if you look back on the past five to seven months of uh, your your journey as a content creator and how long it took to get you to this point, and then you use that to extrapolate how long more, even at the worst case scenario, it would take to reach the same income as you had before, then you can kind of easily make that decision. So I've seen the, the content creators on YouTube for very weird niches like uh, resellers, for example. There are people who resell products by buying them from uh, thrift stores in the US, Goodwill, for example, and then they essentially resell those products uh, on eBay. And yeah, the income is is very bad at the start, but uh, these channels are they went from like 1,000 people watching to like 100,000 people watching now. And then their income shifted from, you know, uh, as a reseller, maybe 80%, 20% content creation to now 40% content creation or even 60% content creation and the remaining 40% from reselling. So it's a very interesting equation is happening where it's kind of like uh, people figuring out that route and tech platforms uh, further amplifying or making it easier for you to shift. And... There's a race, right? It feels like an arms race between people trying to monetize, try to get more viewers, etc. Does it feel like it's too much, it's overheated, or you think we're just you know, under potential? If from the perspective of live selling, then definitely not. Because there's not even enough uh, both buyers and sellers in the equation right now. There's no company building up the demand in that sense. If you're Shopee, you build up demand by running ads for your, your wares and your merchants, right? No one's doing that for live selling right now. So we're in a very nascent stage. It's not like social commerce either where, you know, the profit margins are a bit of question, right? So, you know, the if it's from a live selling angle, then I, I would say that we are in the very early stages. If it's just from content creation as a whole, the red race of content creation doesn't exist. That's the beauty about content creation. You can join and build and create any kind of content you want. There's, even if you repeat someone else's content, even though that's not something you should do, uh, it gets views. 
right? So that's how YouTube works. You know, a video from seven years ago, that's a documentary. Uh, you know, even if you change or kind of do your own documentary version of explaining something, it still gets views. That's kind of the whole point of content creation. It's a never ending cycle. So, you know, it's not a competition where only one person can win. It's more of, you know, a, a massive tournament where everyone gets a prize reward, right? So I would say that, you know, there's definitely that one influencer or streamer or success story at the top, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the people who are in the middle of that race or didn't do as well are not getting better results. <laughs> I would say, in fact, that, uh, you know, I, I can give an example, right? Uh, from a cursory glance, those kids who are you know 15 years old 16 years old screaming their lungs out for minecraft on youtube you might think that they are just making a joke of themselves they're probably making something at 20 to fifty thousand dollars a month that kind of changes things you know it's a very weird story to tell i guess where is interesting is also the southeast asia and the apac lens on this right how do you look at southeast asia how is that distinct or different is it a hybrid of both mm. so i think uh Upmesh, what we did at the beginning was uh, as a very straightforward approach, we built a solution, a SaaS solution in a sense for local community and it works. Uh, China has a much bigger community to work with. So their communities speak the same language. Everyone uses the same platforms. Social media is the same uh, across all folks in China. In the US, you know, there's some variations, but it's still a bigger country uh, as a whole compared to, you know, uh, looking at individual countries in Southeast Asia. But what is interesting about the opportunities in Southeast Asia, uh, not just for live streaming, in fact, uh, is that people haven't noticed, but there are localized influencers doing very well in each country. If you look at the top subscriber counts of the communities or the influencers on YouTube in certain countries, you can't even search for it, by the way, because the their names will be like in uh, the Thai language or Indonesian language, for example, right? They are actually having like 11 million subscribers, for example, right? That kind of number doesn't really happen that often, uh, but it's proof that uh, Southeast Asia has communities. And if you serve uh, the communities locally for each Soviet country at the beginning, then homogenize them into one. It's possible to match or even, you know, be bigger than that of the US or not China for sure, but definitely contest the, the kind of perspectives people have about building for Southeast Asia. Ultimately, live streaming will become a global thing. Uh, you know, the difference between uh, live streaming in US today and Southeast Asia is that Southeast Asia, we are more community driven. So, you know, a lot of people who are shopping through live selling right now, they are actually following a specific live seller. One interesting industry in Singapore that I've seen is uh, crystals. So people who buy gemstones that are, you know, anywhere from $1 per piece to very, very expensive pieces, right? And these are communities, very small groups that have made, it's a, it's like you mentioned, a hobby, right? And they are willing to do buy and sell transactions within their community. In the US, maybe they have things like collectibles, they do have some level of fashion live selling. And then in China, everything flies, right? The, the biggest influencers in China right now, they're not just selling uh, what they were originally doing. So for that, the biggest one is called Li Jiaxi, he's a lipstick king. He started out selling lipstick and he's a guy. He went on now to become the biggest influencer and now everyone just goes through him to sell anything. He can sell cars, you can sell, uh, <laughs> I think so everything possible I can think of. La. So, yeah. That's really interesting. And one aspect of it is also your decisions to build this tool to help these local communities do it. 
How did you go about conceptualizing the idea and then eventually going out to rally a team and investors to it? I think the origin story didn't start in live commerce. So origin story was in live streaming. Initially, we had two co-founders, myself and Jen. Uh, and what we were doing was that we saw how you could essentially build uh, growth engines in Telegram communities, right? So you could do reward uh, reward referrals for people to join the Telegram community. You could build up the actual organic growth through incentives. We wanted to take that approach and apply it to live streaming uh, and games because what was happening in the live streaming space was that people were watching a stream, yes, but there's a lot of engagement between the influencer and the viewers that wasn't being tapped on. You could incentivize people to do something even outside of the live stream. So, for example, if you play a certain title or game in my name, I can give you something for it. And the company that actually runs that game would, of course, incentivize the influencer to do that. Right? So there was a lot of tinkering around trying to build a, a growth engine on top of live streaming on Twitch. But the reason why we didn't go there was because, first of all, we are Southeast Asians, right? Uh, at the end of the day, when you want to build something, you need to see the potential from your perspective. Right? If I'm sitting in Southeast Asia, I can't fly to the US and serve a predominantly US audience on Twitch. I need to interview people to find out more about what problems they're facing before I can embark on that journey. So we went from that and did something closer to home, right? We looked around us and was there live streaming happening in Southeast Asia? And it turns out, yes, there's a lot of them. We interviewed them, you know, we find out what they were doing, how much they were earning, how did they come to be? And it was all things that was replicatable and things that happened very organically without the help of tech. So when tech comes in the picture, they amplify things. Everything goes 10x, 15x. So that's what essentially how Amish started, right? And today, of course, uh, the approach is entirely live commerce driven. That's not just because it's a commercial uh, value out of it, but because it turns out people watch live selling like it's almost a K-drama. There are people who watch live selling every week, even when they've run out of disposable income, right? They just tune into the live stream. They interact and engage with their influencers. So this has become a bit more than just, you know, enabling people to sell stuff. It's more of an entire ecosystem of people interacting with each other, similar to TikTok, really. And how did you go about fundraising for this? What learnings have you got from building out this fundraising process to rally mm. capital to join you in this mission? Well, I think when, and this is an interesting note for st uh, startup founders out there, Typically, most people will describe to you a certain journey for fundraising or they just flat out tell you the truth, which is that they don't know either. Uh, the way I can explain it to people who are looking to fundraise is that it's actually like cooking. Right? There's a recipe. You need to tweak it. You need to commit to certain amounts of each ingredient in order to achieve the final result. Right. So uh, to put it bluntly, uh, I had two experiences with fundraising, right? I helped companies to fundraise during uh, the crypto climate where, you know, three, four years ago, there was a crypto bubble. Every tech company in the world was trying to do something blockchain related and they just, you know, look for people who can advise them how to do fundraising. The easy way to put it is that uh, VCs are looking to de-risk their investment and de-risking their investment means you need to have some kind of organic view on your product. So meaning as a tech company, your website has visitors, right? As a tech company, your Telegram community isn't barren. As a tech company, people are interested in your product. So that's what VCs do to de-risk themselves from a crypto perspective, right? They need, they can only invest in something that has a minor proven track record. 
so what we did was that we came in a picture offered simple service you know community management for blockchain startups uh where you could build up that community and show investors there was interest in your product so that was my first uh, experience personally with fundraising essentially figuring out that hey if you de-risk it for the vcs they come in <laughs> right that's a surprisingly simple equation and then we essentially when we went into you know outside of crypto it's much harder to fundraise i'm not gonna lie but it's the exact same equation right in order for vc to want to invest in you you need to show them that your product has the minimum viable level of success that doesn't mean that you need to build up an mvp it doesn't even mean that uh, you need traction although both of those help drastically it just means that you need to be able to convince the vc that whatever you're doing from a numbers perspective is able to reach you know the valuation they are asking from them so that means for example if you need to prove that live selling exists go and run ads in the countries they are targeting or if you you are trying to do something to solve it show the vcs that with x amount of money you can actually get uh the results that would justify the valuation and you need to prove it in a very hard manner you can't prove it uh just with like you know extrapolated numbers you actually need to go out for example interview like say 100 merchants or get 100 contracts on the table then that's where you filter out who's a bad founder who's a good founder right people who are willing to walk the talk go down and interview uh the people you're actually serving for upmesh before we launched during the six months or even one year before we launched collectively i think uh the early co-founders have done 200 plus interviews and not all 200 interviews were our target audience but we talk to them we find out clearly what is the value add we're serving right so essentially if you de-risk it for the vcs to enter that's when they come in there are other ways to do this as well which is you know maybe this is where gray area comes in where you know get supporters on your side so people always say raise from your friends and family first but in reality the reason why you raise from friends and family is because your friends and family are your supporters right and they're willing to introduce you to people they're willing to do certain things that gets you in touch with the right people so i can say that that is part of the journey as well right the signaling that having people invested in you brings right so one step at a time you know bringing friends and family friends and family introduces you to people who are kind of more important more important people bring you to more and more important people and it goes up the journey from there right and you just have to spend a lot of time talking and talking and really telling them why this is the opportunity of a lifetime eventually when you spend enough time doing something it becomes a conversion number right X percent of people will invest in you, X percent of people will go away, and then X percent of people refer you to the next group of people you need to speak to. Yeah, so I think that about summarizes you know, the equation that's happening in, in fundraising right now. Right? Of course, it looks very different for, for different companies, but as an overall perspective, it's roughly correct. How do you approach that conversation with investors about, you know, this is what I have, this is what we want to achieve, and this is the hundred interviews or that hard evidence that I can get there. So of course, uh, it's part of the journey and the growth, right? So uh, even for Monk's Hill, which I'm sure you know, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, when I meet them, I meet you guys the first time, and then I tell you guys what I do, that you're convinced. I tell you that this is the idea. I tell you that this is where I'm at. I tell you that, you know, in two to three months time, I'm going to get bigger. Right. So maybe in that first impression, it seems like that's not going to happen, right? So ultimately, during the first session, it's more of, okay, you say they're going to do something, but uh, you know we're going to wait. And then later on, if you prove that that growth does happen, even on a small sample size or scale, 
that's when trust is built up. That's when the the you can actually tell the person on the other end of the table, look, what I said is coming true, right? If it goes on true for another two years, it's going to become big. And that's kind of what you need to do uh, a bit at a very extract basis for every single meeting that you have, right? Uh, not every meeting is going to work well on the first uh, meeting. The best ones, of course, you know, the person is aligned with your vision. They've done their research. They invest in the same mandate as you. Uh, you know, they are in your space. They understand what's going on. You don't need to explain anything to them. That's great. Good for you. You found the right person, the right investor. But most meetings, you are the one uh, explaining to the investor why there's an opportunity on the table. And then you have to prove that the opportunity exists through actions afterwards. So I would say that for people in the fundraising cycle, uh, remember to plan out the journey. You know, it's not your first meeting will go well. Maybe you need to extrapolate forward as to what X plus something, you know, an amount would convince that person to put in Y, right? So that's really the approach I would take when it comes to fundraising. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, on that note, I love to wrap things up by paraphrasing the three big themes that I got from this conversation. Uh, the first thank you so much is sharing about why it meant for you to skip university. <laughs> uh, and that's a really tough conversation because we talked about, you know, we can fool ourselves about the risk, we fool ourselves about reward. Uh, the second that was really interesting was talking about creators in terms of the pyramid, the dynamics, the monetization, um, and the same risk and reward dynamic, but more from that lifestyle, hobby, and decision-making. And I laugh a little bit about how you mentioned, like you, have, we, you and I have no idea how anybody handles logistics as a creator, right? You know, it's, it's very actually, <laughs> It's ridiculous because like, like some of my sellers, so I have sellers who even before any tech came in the picture, they were doing an insane amount of money. People don't realize that for every five minutes on screen, they probably spend one hour packing. So in reality, they haven't slept for five days. <laughs> it's because of logistics. And that's the crazy part about it. If we didn't have tech solutions coming in to solve all these things, you would literally have people who can't sleep and are sacrificing way too much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's really good to hear that. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your fundraising recipe, right, <laughs> for cooking, right? <laughs> so uh, how to approach uh, VCs in terms of what you're building as a business, why you care about it, uh, why the problem is really interesting. And then actually going deeper to say, you know, there are always going to be tough conversations because you're persuading someone or persuading yourself and that there is a differentiation between, uh, you know, good founders and great founders based on their willingness to be able to do the leg work. So uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the MHV podcast. Thank you for inviting me as well. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the MHV podcast, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Go to www.monkshill.com for more founders journeys, company building advice, and insights into regional tech trends.